Greetings to you once again, friends, and um, I invite you to join us as we look at our Bible study for this week. I'm going to be looking at the letter of 1 Thessalonians. So if you are looking to find out where that is in the Bible, either just go straight to the contents or the index and have a look at it. But uh, if you go to the New Testament, it is between the book of Colossians and obviously Second Thessalonians or the book of Timothy is just after that. So while you are having a look in your Bibles for that, um, I'm going to offer a word of prayer and then we will get into a little bit of the setting of the letter and um, just have a look and see what Paul has to say to the church. So come, let's pray. Lord, thank you again that we are able to meet together around the scriptures. We thank you for the freedom we have um, as believers in, in this part of the world to be able to study the word and to freely proclaim that we follow Christ. We are mindful of those who around the world don't have the same privilege and the same blessing, and we pray for them. And so, Lord, in a time of upheaval and conflict in the world around us, we also ask for your peace. So, Lord, as we gather around this first letter to the church in Thessalonica, we ask for renewed insight and understanding in the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. So why the letter of 1 Thessalonians? Well, very simply, um, it is one of the letters or one of the books in the lectionary reading that has been set for us. We've moved from Philippians into Thessalonians. And just having a look at the chapters, there's five chapters, and I thought, well, it would work quite nicely to, over, to look at these five chapters over the next five weeks, which, believe it or not, will take us into the time of Advent. Yes, this, uh, this week is the last week in October, and then suddenly we're into November, and believe it or not, Christmas. So, yeah, you can take out your Bibles, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, before I dive into those uh, verses, you'll see that chapter 1 only has 10 verses. Um, I just wanted to paint a little bit of a picture around, around the context um, I found a very helpful little book called The Pocket Bible Handbook, written by Holman and other publishers. And uh, it gives a little bit of an overview of all the books of the Bible. And I found some, some lovely things within this particular book. So um, if you are taking notes or if you are interested, there's a key term or key word that comes up throughout the letters of Thessalonians. And that is the Greek word parousia, which means the coming or the arrival, or the presence of. And so to understand what was happening in the church, it, it was a very new church, a young church, planted by Paul and uh, Timothy and Silas, probably in the region of three years old, give or take, so very young. And what they were really focusing on, or what was consuming a lot of their time and energy, was the second coming of Christ. So they were awaiting the arrival. Um, so a lot of what they're dealing with in the church is around that. But in, also in the second letter, which we won't get to probably at this time or um, maybe in the early next year, we can have a look at it. But what was happening is that there was two responses to the second coming or the coming of the Lord. And that was um, either people were focused on it and ready or people had become very lazy and they were just sitting around waiting and not 
and not waiting with expectation or even action. So there's this sense of trying to remind people of what we should be doing, how we should be living in the context um, of the the parousia, the coming of the Lord. Um, if you wanted to summarize 1 Thessalonians in one sentence, the, the Holman Handbook suggests this. They say, and I quote, Whatever difficulties and sufferings believers experience in this life, the coming of Christ is the true hope of the Christian. So I think that's a nice way of, of summarizing it. And um, given the, the great conversation, even at the moment around the world, in light of all the conflicts in the Middle East and Russia and Ukraine and, and how, how people start to think that this could be the end of the world, um, it's interesting that this has cropped up now in our lectionary readings and Paul is taking us all the way back to the early church where they were also wrestling with, is this the time? You know, is the Lord coming soon? Um, and and what, you know, what do we do about that? When did this particular letter get written? Um, most scholars, scholars, excuse me, um, are kind of unanimous in saying around about AD 50 to 51. So we, we're talking about a generation, maybe 20 years or so after Jesus has ascended into heaven. Um, and very soon after Paul and them have planted this church. So before I even start reading um, the, the, the whole of chapter one, I want to just draw your attention to the very opening sentence of the, the chapter. In the New Living Translation, it starts like this. This letter is from Paul, Silas, or some translations in the Greek will say Silvanus, and Timothy. It is written to the church in Thessalonica, you who belong to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is unusual about that, you may notice, is that um, the writer of Thessalonians, who we believe is Paul, is actually including two other people in the authorship. Silas and Timothy. Now, that immediately should get us interested or intrigued because um, normally there's only one author. But if we go back, and you need to do a little bit of Bible gymnastics at the moment, so keep the place of 1 Thessalonians, but then go back to the book of Acts. And I'm going to take you back to Acts chapter 16 and Acts chapter 17 because this will help us to understand why the three of them are included in this particular letter. So, um, Acts chapter 16, just turning there now, you'll see it's under Paul's second missionary journey, and um, he receives a call to go over to Macedonia. That's in Acts chapter 16, verse 6. It says um, that next Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia, and the Spirit told them not to go to the province of Asia. But then as they came to that province, the Spirit of the Lord wouldn't let them go further, but then they received a vision, or Paul received a vision uh, from a man in Macedonia saying, come over and help us. So if one has a look at a little bit of a map, you'll see that that's quite significant. So moving from what we would call Asia into now Greece, Macedonia, Paul and Silas go over and start to speak about Jesus and share the gospel there. So they, Paul and Silas are together as missionaries. Later on in chapter 16, they are thrown in prison because the, the religious leaders of the time don't like what they're saying. Um, and then you can read through that. But then we come to chapter 17, 
And it tells us very clearly here in the first verse that Paul and Silas then go to Thessalonica. And in Thessalonica, they go to a Jewish synagogue, and there for three weeks, Paul takes the scriptures and he explains to them about the sufferings of the Messiah and his rising from the dead. Now, the reason why this is important for us to note um, is because it helps us to understand why 1 Thessalonians was written. So Paul and Silas, and we'll see also in a moment Timothy, are there, they're in Thessalonica, they are sharing with the, the folk in the synagogue and sharing from the scriptures pointing to Jesus. Now remember, the scriptures that they're using are not the New Testament. The New Testament hasn't been written yet in its canon. So they are talking, Paul's talking from the Torah, from the Jewish scriptures, probably from the prophets, um, and he is showing the people in the synagogue, Jewish people, that Jesus is the Messiah. And it says in verse 4 of Acts 17 that some people who listened were persuaded and became converts. In other words, became, um, shall we say, Messianic Jews, Jews in culture, but became Christians, followers of Christ. And also a large number of godly Greek men and their wives or women in the city converted. So this was the planting or the starting of a new Christian community out of the synagogue. Clearly, this didn't impress the Jewish leaders. You can carry on reading that in Acts 17. And then they start to put a lot of heat on Paul and Silas. They then uh, obviously are, are fear, fearful of their lives. Paul and Silas then leave. Um, they escorted out of the city by those that know them. And you can see that in, uh, in verse 14 of Acts 17, the believers acted at once, sending Paul onto the coast, while Silas and Timothy remained behind. And so Silas and Timothy are now mentioned together. They stay behind for a little bit of time with that very, very new church, that gathering of Christian uh, believers, and they probably instruct them, they teach them, they are there with them, while Paul then goes on to Athens. And then while he's in Athens, the book of Acts tells us he continues to, to preach the gospel. Okay, so having gone in a long roundabout way, we come back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, and we see the reason for including three names, Paul, Silas, or Silvanus, and Timothy. They are, if you like, the, the parents, the fathers of the early of the church in Thessalonian or the Thessalonica, and they are writing now a few um, a few years later, just saying, you know, we've heard some things. How's it going? They're wanting to encourage them. They're wanting to share grace and peace, which is the common greeting in that time, and also just giving them some advice. So if you then come to verse 2, it carries on. It says, we always thank God for all of you and pray for you constantly, which I think would make a lot of sense. If you have planted a church or if you've got a kinship with a group of people, you do think about them. Maybe not every minute of every day, but the, the language of the letter is saying that, that Paul and Timothy and Silas, they concerned. They, they poured their life into those people at great risk to their own physical lives. Of course, they would want to care for them and pray for them. Verse 3, as we talk to our God and Father about you, we think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, 
and your continual anticipation of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the New Living Translation, it's very nice the way it puts this um, in verse 3, this idea of prayer as a conversation. Do you see it? Do you see that? I'm not sure which version you're reading, but maybe your translation is slightly different. Um, it says, as we talk to our God and Father about you. So it's like they're having a conversation with their Heavenly Father about the church, praying for them. In their prayers, they are also thinking of their faithful work, their loving deeds, and their anticipation for the return of Christ. Now, again, you can see three powerful words that crop up in this, in this particular verse, and that would be faith, hope, and love. Their faithful work, Paul says, their loving deeds, and also their hope or their anticipation of the return of Jesus Christ. And, and you know that those are words that Paul loves. 1 Corinthians 13, uh, I think it's verse 13. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. What was evident in the church in Thessalonica clearly was the faithfulness of the people, they were willing to work and, and be faithful in that. There was obviously a lot of love. You know, it wasn't just about their words. It was also about their love and their actions. Their, you know, their actions followed up from the words they spoke. And then also this anticipation, um, which is something that marks all of us as believers or, or should do, is this hope of, um, of the return of, of the Messiah, the hope of Christ to come and uh, to basically make all things right. Verse 4 says, We know that God loves you, dear brothers and sisters, and that he chose you to be his own people. Uh, Paul loves the language also of, the, uh, of, of being chosen, the elect, um, being included in God's family. He would also have been thinking that it's not just a Jewish thing now, but also of the Greeks and, and all those who would willingly accept Christ, become part of the extended family. Verse 5, when we brought, for when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words, but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. And you know that the way we lived among you was further proof of the truth of our message. And so this verse 5 is a, is a lovely one to dwell on and to, to think on. Um, we had a beautiful conversation about this even in, in our Bible study this week, is to, is to say, you know, how, how would they have known at that time that, that the good news that was brought to them was with power? Um, and, you know, how could they identify that the Holy Spirit was there amongst them? Now, it could just be language that Paul was using to express something, but also, it, um, it needed to be a divine work in, in that planting of the church for those people to accept Christ as their Savior. Because, remember, they were Jewish people who then heard the gospel presented. And for them to say yes to Christ or to believe that he was the promised Messiah, they would have needed convincing and not just a human argument, not just a powerful motivational speaker who gave a rah-rah speech and everybody said yes to Jesus. It would have, they would have had to have really considered this and then have made a decision. And so the language here would be 
the power that comes, and remember power in the Greek is the word dunimos, from which we get dynamite. The power of the Spirit brings with it a, a change that can only be divine. Um, and I th it's hard to explain, but I think you understand what I'm saying, is, is that there's only so much that people can do to convince somebody else of an argument or of a particular course in life. There needs to be something else that motivates. Now, when it comes to the work of the Spirit, we would say this is God working in our hearts, ways we can't understand, but we just know that we have to respond. This could even apply to some of you who are listening, that, that moment that you received Christ in your life, it was the work of the Spirit of God that when you heard the sermon or when you responded to that, it may not have made sense in a logical way, but you just knew in your heart that you needed to respond to the message. We would argue that that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Of course, we know that sadly within the church, and I speak about the global church, the the spirit can be manipulated by human beings. Um, and that is just a sad reality. And, and so I think that is why it's important to note the second part of verse 5 in this, where Paul says, And you know that the way we lived among you was further proof of the truth of our message. And this, I think, is very vital, friends. Because as Christians, we should be weighed not only on our words, but also on our actions. You know, you, you hear a very simple cliché like, we need to practice what we preach. Um, and, you know, we need to make sure that our deeds follow up from our words. And, and what Paul is saying to the church, listen, it was the work of the Spirit that moved you. Um, and as you saw in our own lives, it wasn't just that we, we said something and lived another life. No, we were actually among you. We were living with you. You saw how it had changed us. And of course, having a real live example like Paul in their midst would have also been very convincing because they would have known that he was a Pharisee. They would have known that he was once the persecutor of Christians. So to have a man like that in your home or in your kind of your small little church telling a story about how he had had his life changed by the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 9, the encounter on the road to Damascus, is, is, um, is such a powerful testimony. It's, again, something that you can't argue against very easily because you have the person sitting in front of you. And so I would say for, for us, if you're listening to this and you're wondering, you know, is the Spirit, the power of the Spirit at work in our lives or in our church? I would say that normally over time, it may be a few weeks or months, one can test the legitimacy of the move of the Spirit by the fruit that comes from that. Jesus would say, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Um, and that's just a way, I think, of discerning. Um, whether something that has happened, a profound thing that has happened, is genuinely of God or whether it's just been created by man. Anyway, that's my thoughts on it. You're welcome to engage with that. So verse 6 says, So you received the message with joy from the Holy Spirit, in spite of severe suffering it brought you. In this way you imitated both us and the Lord. So again, another 
possible clue as to whether it was of God or man was that when they were saying yes to to Jesus, the Spirit moved within them and it gave them this joy and this peace that passes all understanding. It was call, not calling them to a life of prosperity. You know, the whole thing of the prosperity gospel. Paul is saying it is actually their saying yes to Jesus brought with it suffering. The suffering that Jesus had encountered, the suffering that Paul and them were, were encountering. And so there's also another indication of how much people really wanted to follow Jesus. Um, you know, it's, it's easier to follow Christ if you can promise people the road's going to be smooth or you're going to have a massive bank balance or you're going to have everything go your way, which is a complete lie. But if, if we could promise people that, then more people would put their hands up and say yes to Jesus. But what we are actually saying or what Paul is saying is your yes to Christ came at a great cost to you. It was, it was a time of difficulty, a time of conflict, um, but he's commending them for being, for being willing to say yes. Verse 7 says, As a result, you, will say, you yourselves became an example to all the Christians in Greece, and now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere, even beyond Greece. For wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. We don't need to tell them about it, for they themselves keep talking about the wonderful welcome that you gave us and how you turned away from idols to serve the true and the living God. So that, that verse points to us again that for the church in Thessalonica, um, their faith went to such a point where it served as a witness to others. People were seeing the amazing work of God and they were then just naturally telling the story to other people. Um, and so we, we see perhaps even a little model here of discipleship, that as Paul and Silas and Timothy teach them about the gospel, they are transformed. They then in turn pass it on to other people who are transformed. And so the good news spreads in a, in a natural way. Verse 10, And they speak of how you are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. And there in that last verse, verse 10, we see the connection with the whole letter. It's around the hope of the coming of the Lord. Um, they didn't know at the time that it would take hundreds of years, and we are still waiting for the coming of Christ, but their lives were lived in such a way that they witnessed to this hope that Christ was going to come again. And so as, as we're going to, over the next few weeks, like I say, get deeper into this, this letter, I would invite you to, to read it through if you would like to. Um, you can read ahead each week and, and then perhaps do some of your own reading together with us so it, it becomes more and more meaningful for you. Um, but this, this letter, I hope, would, would also give us um, a, a greater hold on, on how we live as Christians in the present time. Yes, the time 2,000 years ago in Greece, very different in many ways, but some of the issues they faced are arguably similar to what we are facing now. They lived in a, um, in a society that was, was not Christian. Um, in fact, being a Christian took, 
guts. It took a risk, it took courage. Um, they also needed to, to make sure they were witnesses to what they'd encountered in Christ. They needed to rely on the move of the Holy Spirit, not just on, on good speakers or, or motivational speakers to, to convince people of the truth. It needed the word of God to really resonate with people. Another interesting thing, just to close, um, which may help us also see how God works um, in conjunction with what's happening in the world around us and how God can use the things of the world often for his own purposes, is that at the time when Paul and Silas and Timothy were going on these missionary journeys, they were going through lands that had, had been conquered previously by Alexander the Great. One of the things about Alexander the Great um, was that he managed not only to be a military conqueror, but he also, in a, in a way, um, I think it's William Barclay who speaks of him as maybe one of the first universalists of, uh, of history, who brings together people from all over an empire to try and make it one. Obviously, this is followed up by the Romans and so on. And so there is this a platform, if you like, that makes the spreading of the gospel a little bit easier because of what has gone before through someone like Alexander the Great and then even through the Roman Empire. There's, there's a connection through, through culture, there's a connection through language, um, through military power, through political power that, that of course, it sometimes will, will make, their, um, make it harder, will present obstacles, but another sense could also help spread the gospel. And um, I say that because we would argue, going back a few years now to our COVID experience, how COVID could have threatened the churches in that the gospel was not able to be preached on Sundays in a church building. But as we have seen, and even this audio Bible study is a testimony of that, we found creative ways of using technology, social media, all of that to keep the faith to keep sharing the good news, keep reflecting on the Bible so that we could continue in our faith. And so I think it's a wonderful reminder to us all that God is sovereign. And despite what we see happening around us, that we can still trust in his faithfulness um, to bring us uh, to the ultimate goal, which is to be with him. Friends, I commend to you my ramblings, as I always say. May God add his blessing to them. And I, and I pray it will give you a desire and a hunger to, to read through Thessalonians. So may God bless you, and I look forward to sharing with you again next week. Amen.